Ephesians chapter 4. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 4, uh, 1 through 6 this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is all, who is over all and through all and in all. May we be blessed by the reading of God's word this morning. Before we get, you may be seated, before we start with the message, I want to encourage you with two things uh, this morning. The first is I would really encourage you to come out Friday night at 6 to 7. This is our opportunity to come and really lament over uh, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ in preparation for Sunday as we come back Sunday to rejoice in the resurrection of our King Jesus. Amen. Uh, next Sunday is Easter. Uh, they say the research says, and this is my other encouragement to you, I would encourage everyone to invite somebody to Easter service. The research says uh, that Sunday service or Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, uh, more people are likely to come into church. Uh, about 70% of all that we would ask, if we would just ask to come on Easter, they would come and join us for that service. Uh, next week, we will look at uh, what it means to have the power of the risen Savior in our lives. And so that's what we'll be looking at. So I'd encourage all of you to come back and to invite somebody with you. I was thinking this week in preparation for Holy Week, that's what we enter into this morning, Holy Week, uh, as we prepare for Easter. As I was thinking, if you would mind, turn with me to Matthew for just a moment before we get into the book of Ephesians. You know, today is Palm Sunday. It's the, East, it's the Sunday before Easter. And if you remember about Palm Sunday, it's when the people came and they heralded Jesus as king. Right? And so he tells his disciples, he says, go and find that colt and bring the colt to me and I'm going to ride in uh, into Jerusalem on a donkey. And if you remember in Matthew chapter 21, here's what happens. Here's the landscape of what's going on. So here Jesus comes and it says this in Matthew chapter 21, verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their, clo clo their cloaks on the road and others with branches from the trees and spread them on the road and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting hosanna hosanna to the highest to the son of david blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord hosanna in the highest as jesus walked in and i, I just was thinking to myself and wondering to to us as a church how often we say those words and yet, if you think about what happens seven days from that moment, that same crowd is the crowd that screamed for him to be crucified. That is a scary connection to me. That the people that threw down their, their coats and threw down the branches and said, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, are the same people 
just a few days later that said, let us crucify him. And I believe that that has everything to do with what we're going to teach this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. If you've been with us with any length of time, you know that we're studying through the book of Ephesians. And we've called this series Ecclesia, the called out ones. That this is the church, this book is written for the church, the church in Ephesus, but this book applies to all of us. What Paul is doing, what Paul is going to do is say, here's what it means to be the people of God, here's what it means to believe in this Jesus Christ, here's what it means to be called out, and this is what it means to live it out practically. And so we we finished chapter 3 last week, and we're heading into chapter 4, and there's this one word. Again, if you ever see the word therefore in the Bible, know that the writer put it there to let you know it's there for a reason. And it's therefore to let you look back on what he just wrote. And so he just wrote three of the most powerful chapters, in my opinion, in the Bible. I mean, the, 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 the theology in these three chapters are so rich and so deep. You know, we looked at chapter 1, that one long sentence that Paul had. Probably, again, in my opinion, the the most theologically rich sentence in all the Bible. And it's about us being called out by God to be the people of God for his glory and for his purposes. And that's what he spends the bulk of chapter 1, 2, and 3 on. Well, now in chapter 4, he uses this word, therefore, and now the rest of the chapter, he changes his direction. And so the first half, we could say it this way. The first half of Ephesians is all about our orthodoxy. The word orthodoxy means what we believe to be true about God. So he's going to list out what we believe to be true about God. And every believer must believe in these things to be a genuine believer or follower of Christ, to be part of the church. That's our orthodoxy. And we all, as Christians, have an orthodoxy, do we not? I hope we do. Jared sang it last week over us. Uh, the, The Apostles' Creed is something that we as Christians hold true that there is one lord there is one jesus there's one holy spirit there's one baptism we'll see that in this passage and so every believer on the planet holds to an orthopraxy whether you're a a, a baptist whether you're episcopalian whether you're a methodist like at the core of all who we are if we believe that jesus is the son of god that is our orthodoxy that's what makes us unique from every other religion Well, now what Paul's going to do is move into what we'll call our orthopraxy. That means how we live out what we believe. You see, if we have all orthodoxy, what we believe to be true, and we sit and do nothing with it, then I would say we're not a true follower of Jesus Christ because our orthodoxy must compel us into orthopraxy, what we live out. And that's what Paul's going to say to us in these next three chapters how are we to live as the people of god right remember in matthew chapter 5 6 and 7 that's the beatitudes the beatitudes are hey you've been established as the kingdom of god and this is what it means to live in the kingdom of god that's the beatitudes and so paul's going to say here's how we the church are to live in a lost and dying world so our ortho 
Doxies chapter 1, 2, and 3 are orthopraxies praxis 4, 5, and 6. And this is what Paul says. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, I was thinking about this a lot. Uh, one, one of my good friends um, played, he, he plays professional baseball. And so he had played for the last several years for the Dodger organization. And he got called up last year, and he was playing for the Dodgers, and he was having a great season. And then all of a sudden, uh, he had a child. And so, now again, I, I don't make what a pro- professional baseball player makes. So he had a family, and what uh, the Dodgers were going to pay him wasn't going to be enough to live on. I thought, man, that's crazy, but okay. And so what he did was he decided to go play ball in Japan. Well, all, all of a sudden, everything changes for him. You see, he was identified as a Dodger. Well, the moment he signs his name on a contract with that team in Japan, he's no longer a Dodger, is he? Like, if he goes to Japan and thinks he is a, uh, an L.A. Dodger, things aren't going to go well for him, will it? I remember playing uh, ball in high school, and I transferred uh, into my uh, years in high school. And so I went from Virginia to Texas. And we had some of the same play calls in Virginia that we did in Texas. But if I had just gone by strictly the name of the play, man, I would not have been in sync with the rest of my team in Texas. And I think about this passage here. And I think about us, the people of God. And I think we've had a name change, but in our name change, we haven't taken on what that name change really means. Meaning we can walk an aisle, we can pray a prayer, we can say we're a believer in Jesus Christ, but when we leave here, nothing in our life looks different than when it came and when we prayed a prayer. And what Paul is going to say to us is, if you've had a genuine experience with the Lord Jesus, you you have this orthodoxy, then everything in your life has to change. That's what he says. I, therefore, as a prisoner of Jesus, urge you. Circle the word urge in your Bible. The word urge means he begs, he implores the people of the church of Ephesus. I beg you. I'm pleading with you, church, to now walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've received. What's the calling? The calling is salvation. That God himself called you out from death to life and given you a new life. He tells us in Corinthians, you're a new creation. Or as he says in John chapter 3, you've been born again. And yet I just wonder if all we are is Christians by namesake. But our lifestyle hasn't changed. And Paul is saying to the people, I urge you. I urge you to what? Walk. So the call from Paul, the call from God is this urging to walk. And that word walk means a day in and day out relationship with God. 
that it's an ongoing walking with the Lord. And yet again, I wonder how many of us have just simply walked an aisle and prayed a prayer and we didn't turn around and continue to walk with God. Like if all it ever was for you, if all it ever is for me is simply a prayer, then I would say I don't know if you've been called by God. Like our calling from God is not a free get out of hell card like you get in Monopoly. Like God has way more than saving you from hell. He wants to save you from yourself and save you into a family of God. And so if all you have is simply a get out of hell free card, I would urge you the way Paul is urging the people in Ephesus. I don't know if you've been called by God. Because you look throughout the Bible. And every man and every woman that was called by God had a radical conversion in the way they lived life. Everything about them changed when they came face to face with a holy God. And so Paul is saying, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The other part about this first verse that comes to mind is this idea of acceptance. I think all of us long for acceptance. We desire to be a part of something, do we not? Like there's no one in the room that desires to be alone. If that's you, come see me. I'll do some professional counseling with you. But I think all of us in the room, we, from the time we were born, we long to be accepted. I could see that in Cedar. I see that in Tennyson as little kids. And that fleshes itself out later in life. Like that, that's why we have fraternities and sororities for this idea of acceptance. I've always thought it strange. You're going to go pay for friends? But that's what a fraternity is. Hey, I'm going to buy into this group so I'll be accepted, so I'll be a part of something bigger than myself. That, that's the draw for sports. That's the draw for all that we do is this longing for acceptance. And I think that's the great tension between the world and being a follower of Christ. If we want to be accepted by God, but there's this moment in all of us that we still want to be accepted by the world if we're really honest with ourselves. And Paul is saying as a reminder, you've already been accepted by the holy God of the universe. That's your calling. He's called you now, therefore he's accepted you. And in your being accepted, now you are a child of God. If you're a child of God, you're a co-heir with Jesus. We've been reading about that. So if there's any tension in you about wanting to be accepted, you have been, if you're a believer, been accepted because of your call by Christ on your life. So that's our calling. So Paul's urging us to walk in a a manner worthy of our calling. And our calling is simply that we've been called out from death to light, that we're now believers, now we're a part of a church, something bigger than ourselves. And now he's going to tell us the characteristics of our calling. So he's going to say, here's your calling, and now this is what it's going to look like. And these five things in these next two verses build upon each other. If you do not have the first one, you will never get to the last one. If you only have the first two, you won't get to the last one. The last one is the coup de grace of all of them. They're the thing that puts them all together. And so what are the characteristics of our calling? 
you've been called. And this is how you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, with forbearance of love, and for unity. So the first one is simply this. We must have humility in our calling. See, that's, that's the beauty of being called. Because if I've been called by Jesus Christ, then it's not about myself, it's about the one who called me. So I can't be prideful that I ever walked an aisle. I was called by God. And so Paul says, where it starts is it must start with humility. It's not about you. And I wonder, church, do we walk with humility? Do, do we walk as humble men and humble women? You see, Jesus Christ was the ultimate picture of humility, was he not? Turn with me a couple pages to the right, to Ephesians chapter 2. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He says in verse 4, let us each look not only to our own interests, but also to the the interests of others, having this in mind among ourselves. I love this next few verses. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though was in the form of God, did not count himself equality with God, a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and spoke, uh, bestowed him on him the name that at every na- above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the God of our Father. Think about that humility. Like Jesus is the ultimate picture of humility. Remember, Jesus, when he was born, he pulled on skin. He was God. He pulled on skin, humbled himself to become the form of a baby, to be born in a manger to two teenagers. Like God could have decided that Jesus could have been born anywhere, at any time, in any situation. And what did he do? He humbled himself to the will of God to be born as a baby in a manger. And then what did he do? He came and walked on this planet for 33 years. And it was never about himself. It was about the will of his father, was it not? He said, I came to seek and save that which is lost. I've become a servant. I've come to serve. And all of Jesus' life was an attitude of humility. Think about the moment on, uh, when he got uh, arrested. In that moment, he didn't have to go through the beating he went through. But he chose to in his humility. You see, at the moment, Jesus, at a snap of a finger, could have called legion upon legions upon legions of angels down to rescue him. But he didn't. He was humble. And so what does Paul say about our calling? Where must it start? It must start with our humility. And so I'd ask yourself this morning, 
If you were to grade yourself with humility, how would you grade yourself? And then he says it doesn't stop with humility. It builds upon humility. Right? Is, is not pride what happened in the garden? Is pride not the thing that caused all sin to happen? Like a lack of humility, sin is always going to be the root of pride. But that's what happened with Adam and Eve. They thought they knew best. Is that not what happened with Lucifer? Like he wanted to be God. He wasn't willing to humble himself before a holy God. And he wanted to become God. And God said, I'm not having that. Kicked him out of heaven with all uh, a third of the angels. Is that, again, is that not what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden? God said, don't do it this way. And their lack of humility says, our way is better than your way. And so for all of us, sin will always start with pride. Because sin says, I know what's best for me. God does not know what's best for me. And so he says, walk the calling and walk it this way first with humility. Which means I must get up every morning. And you must get up every morning with a desperate plea to the Lord Jesus. I need your help because apart from you, I can do nothing is what he tells us in John 15. And I wonder, church, do we start our day with that level of humility? Because if we don't, we'll never get to the next one. It starts with humility. And he says, then it goes to this, and with gentleness. The word gentleness in the Greek is the word that we get our our word meekness from. Is that not where Jesus starts the Beatitudes? He's talking about being meek. And all of us, when we think of the word meek, our culture takes meekness and applies weakness to it. Meek people are weak people. But the word in the Greek, meek, simply means this. To have power that's under control. I'm to, I'll say it to the dad, I'm deathly afraid of horses. Because they're powerful, powerful animals, are they not? I mean, when their eyeballs are as big as my head, that, that's, that's danger. But man, a horse, a wild horse is one of the most powerful animals on the planet. I mean, a, a great thoroughbred horse. There's like no, like, have you ever seen those horses run, the, the Kentucky Derby? There's not like an f- ounce of fat on their body. It's like they are a lean racing machine full of muscle. And they could tear you apart in a second just by running over you. So they're a powerful animal, are they not? But they're meek animals because they have what we would call a jockey or a rider. You see, uh, uh, and those jockeys, I mean, I'm a tall guy, but they, they are about this high. Like, you've got to get a step stool to get onto a horse. You're, you're small if you've got to do that. But those little men and those little women, the jockeys, they have total control of the horse, do they not? Like, if the horse knew what it could do, it could throw that hor- the rider of that horse off in an instant, could it not? But because that rider is in total control of that horse, we would call that horse to be meek. The greatest racehorses are the meekest racehorses. And that's what Jesus says to us through Paul. In order to walk out this Christian life, you have to have power that's under control. 
And are we not the most powerful creatures on the planet as human beings? Like we're the one animal that, that can choose right from wrong. We, we have a self-will, do we not? And if your self-will and my self-will go crazy, it's like putting a spark into a, a force, and that whole force goes ablaze, does it not? So we're powerful, powerful creatures because God has given us self-will. But we need our self-will to be under God's total control, which comes through one word, submission. So I won't have submission if I don't have humility. Because if I don't have humility, then I'll say I'm always in control. But if I have healthy humility, then I have this healthy understanding of who I am and what I can do. And therefore, I must surrender to God. Then he goes on to say it this way. (laughs) With patience. So I've got to have humility. I've got to have meekness. And I've got to have patience. Now Jesus, or Paul, begins to get into the latter ones that I really struggle with. I really struggle with patience. I really struggle with forbearance of love. If I'm just honest. Because my patience says come on already like what god is doing in my own heart in my own life is allowing me to let him be in control see that's what my lack of patience is because with this whole i thing my timetable has not been god's timetable like whatever you're dealing with today it's obvious that it's not god's timetable and we want to further things along faster do we not But Paul tells us in another one of his epistles that uh, patience produces endurance. So I have to be patient. Well, how am I going to have patience? I've got to have meekness. And I must have humility. Because if I don't have meekness and I don't have humility, I'll never have patience. Again, because I want what I want when I want it. Anyone else identify with that? And I want it now. Like, I wish the kingdom of God had the same slogan that Burger King did, my way right away. But it doesn't. It's God's way when he wants, his way. So I have to have patience. Which if I don't have patience, there's no way I'll ever have the next one. Love for one another. Is that not what he says? So you must have Humility, you must have meekness, you must have patience, bearing with one another in love. I think this is one of the things we here at Powell's Chapel struggle with collectively the most. I can say that I've been here three years and I've taken notice of a lot of things and we we don't have patience with one another and because we don't have patience with one another, we don't have forbearing love for one another. We get irritated with one another really quickly. Man, I wish they would do it this way. I wish they wouldn't have done it this way. I can't believe they did this. I can't believe they're not doing that. I've heard all those things, and so have you. I know you've heard those about me, the pastor. I'm not ignorant to that. But I I believe it comes out of not being patient with what God is wanting to do here. God has a plan for this church, does he not? 
and it's not your plan, it's definitely not my plan, and we must be patient with one another as we submit to God to allow God's plan to take root here. Because if we don't allow God's root to take, uh, God's plan to take root here, we won't be patient. If we're not patient, there's no way we're going to love one another. Which then builds upon the last one. He says it this way. Eager. Circle that word in your Bible. Eager. Like when you think of the word eager, what comes to mind? I'm sure a lot of us are eager to get to lunch. I'm sure it's a lot of, you know, like Tennyson and Cedar, they're eager when Christmas time comes. They're eager to open the gifts. We've got to hold them back. And, and next Sunday morning, they're going to be eager to tear into all the candy. We're going to be uh, needing to put some restraints on them. But there's this eagerness, there's this longing, there's this overwhelming desire is what Paul says in that word eager there's an eagerness for what did he say to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace so do we church here at palace chapel have an eagerness for unity in the spirit with peace and it comes out of the first one do we have a healthy humility for who we are? Do we have a meekness that's under the control of God's will and God's power? Do we have patience with one another? Do we love one another? And do we eagerly maintain unity? You see, if you don't have the first four, if you don't have the first four, you'll never have unity. How could you have unity without humility? How can you have unity without patience? How could you have unity without meekness? How can you have unity without love? Like if you're married, do you want to be in a marriage without love? Anyone? No. I mean, maybe I need to ask that question again because everyone's like, well, um. Let me ask the question again. Do you want to be in a marriage where your spouse does not love you? Do you want to be in a marriage that your spouse isn't patient with you? Do you want to be in a marriage where your spouse isn't humble with you or meek with you? No. Therefore, you can't have unity if any of the four are missing. And I wonder, church, Pals Chapel, I'm not talking universal. I'm talking about us, us 70 people. Which ones are missing? Because I know there's some missing. Because of our lack of unity. Crickets. I'll say it again. I know one of the four, if not all four, are lacking in this church because of the lack of unity we have. Because we still have this place in all of our hearts that, man, I want Powell's Chapel to be this way. And God has a plan and a desire for Powell's Chapel. And when we submit to him and we submit to his will, then all of us collectively will be in one accord with the will of God for this church and not on our own. Therefore, we will have to make sacrifices. Amen? That's what Paul's going to list out the rest of these next three chapters. So if this message is uncomfortable, I promise the next three chapters are going to be super uncomfortable. 
And then he says this. So we have one call made up of five characteristics. And this is the cause. This is how it all happens. Verses five and six. He says, there is one body, four and five and six. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. So do we not have one hope, church? Our hope is the risen Savior that will come and celebrate at Easter. That's our cause. That's how it's going to happen. And then he's going to list out the rest of it. He says it this way. There's one Spirit. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God the Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. So the cause of our calling is a unity with the Spirit. So if we're all going to be united, if we're all going to have the same call, then we must all be united with the Spirit of God. Which means this. Are we praying in one accord to the Spirit of God for His will and His direction for your life, my life, and the life of this church? Because we must be in unity with the Spirit of God. Do we all believe that God has a plan and a purpose for this church? Is it 60 plans and purposes for this church? Or is there one plan and purpose for the church? There's one. Do you not think God wants to reveal that to us? So that must mean we have to come in one accord with the Spirit of God. Do we believe that? Do we have unity with the Spirit? And the next one is this. Do we have unity with Christ? Right? That's what he says in verse 5. One Lord, one faith. You see, what Paul is talking about is this. You cannot be in one accord, in one spirit with this church if you do not have one Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen? So if there's any other Lords in your life, if there's any other things in your life that take reign on the throne of your heart, you cannot be in one accord with the Spirit. You cannot be in one accord with the church. The only way to come into one accord with the Spirit of God through the Lord Jesus Christ is through submission and surrender to His will in your life. And if you're not there today as a believer, then the only other way to do it is through repentance. If there's any ongoing sin in your life or my life, I cannot be in one accord with the Lord. I must start with repentance. And so I beg the question, is there sin in the camp? Is there sin amongst us? Do you remember in the Old Testament where Achan had stolen the, 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 the things that God said, do not touch? You, you do not touch those things. Leave them. And what did Achan do? He grabbed them and he ran to his tent and he hid them. And what happened to the people of God? Because of one man's sin, the people of God fell. And they had a great defeat because of one man's sin. The whole nation of Israel fell because of one man's sin. And so I wonder, church, is there sin that's unconfessed here in our house? And I'll say it this way. We will either face God through being humble before him, or he will humiliate us. Either way, he's going to get your attention. Either way, he will always expose sin in our lives. 
And I would implore you, let it be through your confession rather than him exposing it. Luke 12 says it this way, what you do in the secret will be revealed from the rooftops. Do we have unity with Christ through confession of sin? And then the last one, he says this. Do we believe that there is one baptism, one God, and one Father? You see, do we, are we unified in the Spirit? Are we unified in the Son? Are we unified that God is who God is and reigns sovereign in control over all things? You see, if we want unity, we must have these things. We must be reminded of our call. We must walk with these five characteristics. We, we must walk with humility, with meekness, with patience, with love. And we must be unified as one body. And we must be reminded that we're united through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God himself gave his Son for us. The man who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could have everlasting life. And then he promised us when he rose and went back into heaven that he'd give us a helper, the Holy Spirit. Are we in unity with those three? Because if all those happen, then there'll be unity in the church, amen? And then all of us will lay down our idols, we'll lay down our desires, we'll lay down our wants, and we'll surrender to God's will for this church. That's what Paul's going to tell us the rest of chapter 4 five and six so do you have healthy orthodoxy do you believe that jesus christ is the risen savior you must start there and if you start there then he's going to call you and he has called you into his family he's called you into his family then there's a way that you and i must live life you see wherever tennyson and Sear go they go with my namesake everywhere they go when they go to school, they carry our name. And so they're a reflection on me and Jenny, are they not? And when they grow older and they get to high school, they're going to carry our namesake. And wherever they go, they carry our namesake. And when they get to college, they will always be a reflection on Jenny and myself. And yet a hundred thousand fold is true for us as believers. Everywhere we go as Christians, we carry the namesake of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, does your life everywhere you go, in the secret places, in the, the lit places, does it reveal to people, man, that is a child of a holy, risen Savior? Or do you blend in with the world? That's what Paul's asking us. Therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Church, we've been called by the Savior of the universe to carry the greatest gospel message to the world. Are we doing that? Let us pray. God, I pray for all of us in this place that when we came to know you, everything changed about us, which is true. Our identity changed. Our destiny changed. Our eternity changed. Who we are changed. And yet my great fear, God, is we don't live in those realities.
that we were more scared of hell and not going there than we were of you and facing you in your presence. And I do pray for us as a church, God. I pray for unity. I pray for oneness. And so whatever it is in this place today, God, that's preventing that, I pray it would start with confession. First, confession between you and each of us. And then, God, confession, if there's anyone in this place that we have sinned against or have sinned against, we'd go and confess that to them. That, God, we would be patient with one another. We'd love one another. Unify us as a church for your purpose. And your purpose isn't complicated. It's not easy. But it's simple. That, God, that we would come and we'd gather in this place and we'd glorify you. And then we'd go from this place and we'd make you known. That's what we stand for here at Pals Chapel. To know you, Lord Jesus, and to make you known here in Walter Hill, here in Middle Tennessee, here in Tennessee, the U.S., and then around the world. Allow us to know you and make you known. Pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus.